Well, let's take our Bibles tonight or take the order of service and turn to that uh, passage we read together a moment ago. In working our way through the book of Acts, we've come in this third chapter to the record of a miracle. You know, the only miracles that you're ever going to come across that you need, really need to take attention to are those that are in the Bible. They're there for teaching purposes. They're there in order to build up our faith, and we're going to see why as we go through this evening. The miracle that's recorded was thorough. It was instantaneous. It was performed in public. Ankles and feet, which had never worked, started to move. Muscles that had never formed began to develop. Neural commands that had never been heeded suddenly got through. Got through enough that the man got off the ground onto his feet and into the air, and he started walking and leaping and praising God. And he started to follow the disciples. He followed them into the temple. He'd never been in before. He'd always been outside, outside the gate. But now he's in the temple, clinging to them, perhaps clinging because he doesn't want to get away from them. He doesn't want ever to be out, uh, them to ever to be out of his life, wanting others to know, wanting everyone to know that it was through these men that his life had been changed instantaneously by the power of God. And it didn't take long for word to get out. News of the transformation of the beggar got round the temple area like wildfire. We're told all the people ran together to them in the portico of the temple called Solomon's, this huge cloistered area where a double row of marbled columns roofed over was a collection point for masses of people as they made their way to the temple courts. It was there that Jesus had often walked and talked. We're told about these people, they were astounded, which is to say that they were amazed, they were utterly astonished, they were in a state of wonder, they couldn't believe their eyes. They'd seen this man, many of them had seen this man every day, many of them for their whole lifetime had seen this man in his state. And now to see him as he was, they are amazed. They couldn't believe their eyes at what they saw. So here is the second great event. There's the event of Pentecost. So many of them had been there on that day, and they'd heard people speaking in their own dialect and their own language, the wonderful works of God. And now there's this cripple. And both of these events are presented by Luke in this book as being the mighty acts of the exalted Christ. Both these events proclaim Jesus as the Son of God and Lord. Both of them fulfill the Scripture. Both of them anticipate the last days. Both of them arouse the crowd's amazement. And both of them were manifestly supernatural events. So what has happened? Well, what has happened is that there has been an event. I've called it that. There was a phenomenon. Something had occurred. And this is a very crucial insight, right at the very beginning of our, our study this evening, a crucial insight into the nature of Christianity, that Christianity is not primarily a teaching, it's not a philosophy, it is a series of events that have taken place in space and time and history. Lucas told us that at the very beginning of his work, which you'll find in Luke chapter 1, he's told us 
that he had set about to record things that had happened, the things that had been done among us. Here in volume two of his work, he's begun by saying that his determination was to write and report and record all that Jesus began to do and to teach and now what he continued to do and to teach through the apostles. How are people going to react to this phenomena? Well, we know that people inevitably speculate or they are curious or they're ready to make celebrities out of the wonder workers or they resort to their own explanation, usually a magical explanation or in our day it would be a rational explanation for what has occurred. And Peter immediately recognizes a misunderstanding is about to take place and so he moves quickly to correct it. You notice that. He establishes his relationship with them. They share a common faith. Men of Israel, he says. And then he asks them, why is it that you wonder at this? Pointing to the healed man. And then, why do you stare at us? Pointing to himself with a gesture. They were amazed earlier by the events of Pentecost. And now they're amazed by this event, this healing. It's as if they're, by paying attention to these events of recent day, if they'd been paying attention rather to these events of recent days, why would they be surprised at the healing? Surely, after the events of Pentecost, they should be prepared. Things are not the way they were. Things have changed. Something is afoot. Something is, is happening in their midst. But Peter is challenging them. They shouldn't look at the man and they shouldn't be looking at them. They should be very careful what they look at where they give the credit for this miracle. Why would you look at us, he says, as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? He was well aware that pagan legends spoke of divine men, men with supernatural powers. He was equally aware that Jewish teachers and traditions spoke of teachers who were so godly that God was obligated to answer their prayers. In pagan context, that was manifestly blasphemous. But even in Jewish contexts, too much focus could be placed on the human agent that would invariably detract from the glory that is due to God alone. And what Peter is saying then is this. Such an obviously mighty work of God could not be credited to the power of the apostles. It was beyond any normal human ability. Nor should it be credited to their personal godliness. This word piety that is used here only appears about uh, ten times uh, in the pastoral letters. First and second Timothy and in second Peter four times. And it always refers to someone of good character. Mere piety, that is mere good character, being a good person could not explain this miracle. There are lots of good people. People of good character who have never performed a miracle. Nor was there any innate power in them. It wasn't that they were Greek wonder workers or pagan divine men or even Jewish charismatics. They were none of those things. And what Peter does is he deflects the attention of himself. He deflects the attention of himself and John and onto the real source of the miracle. Now, why does he do that? Well, he does that, of course, because those who know God cannot bear, cannot bear that any glory belonging to God should ever be deflected onto them. No one who knows God 
can for one second, can for one second bear the idea that people should treat them with celebrity simply because they have done their duty as servants of God. Those who know God cannot bear that God should not get the glory. But also those who know God are concerned to smash forever the human preoccupation with finding a human explanation for things that have happened. What he's saying to these people is this. You've seen a miracle. Get over it. That's the phenomenon. Yes, that, that's a remarkable thing. But let's not look at the miracle here for a moment. Let's see what the miracle points to. Do you notice there's another thing that Peter doesn't say? Here are these people, they're coming astonished. Apparently they're running to them. Here they are crowded around. You can see Peter has got the best audience he's ever going to get in his life. They're all pressing around and they're anxious to see him and John. Do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, anyone else want healed? Let's have a healing meeting right here. Let's make sure everybody gets in on the act. No, you see, what this parable, this, this miracle is in the Bible to teach us is this. That you mustn't be confused by the effects of Christianity, but rather you must concentrate, focus on the message of Christianity. You see, there are many effects. There are many effects of Christianity that we can observe in the world today. Perhaps healing, guidance, friendship, cultural change, social improvement. Many of those things are byproducts. They're effects of Christianity on society. They're an effect of the church's presence in the world. But they are not the message of Christianity. The church is not commissioned to preach the effects. The church is commissioned only to preach the message, the gospel. Now you can see that in the way in which Peter deals with this phenomenon. Because he then goes on to give an answer to their unasked question and to give the credit where the credit is due. Do you notice? Don't look at us. Don't think it's our power or piety. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. What is this miracle all about? Here is, here is Peter's summary. God has accomplished his purposes through Jesus. It is God in his glorification of Jesus that has led to this healing. And what he's doing is laying a biblical theological foundation for understanding how it is that God's declared intention to bless Israel and the nations through Abraham's offspring is now to be fulfilled through the glorification of Jesus Christ as servant and Lord. So do you notice where he starts? He doesn't even start with Jesus. He starts at the beginning. He starts with God, with who God is, with what God has done, and with how God works. He starts with who God is. Do you see how he puts the healing of this crippled man in the context of the work of Jesus and into the bigger picture of the Bible's revelation of God? 
He takes us back to the Old Testament immediately. He takes us back to a story, to the history of Israel. He takes us back to this quotation, which comes, by the way, from the book of Exodus, to the story of Moses. And to the story of Moses at a time in his life when everything was going wrong for him. Moses had run away from Egypt. Uh, he had spent 40 years in Midian, in what the old King James Version called the backside of the desert. He was out on his own. He was living as a shepherd when suddenly he met God. And now he wasn't looking for God. He wasn't reflecting at this stage in his life. He wasn't reflecting on the answer to the question, the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, which, according to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is 42 for some obscure reason. He wasn't reflecting on any of that stuff. He wasn't in a trance. He wasn't meditating or anything in particular. He was minding his sheep and minding his own business when something happened. There was a phenomenon. There was an event. There was a burning bush. There it was. There was a bush burning, and the bush was not consumed. It was a phenomenon. It was an event. So what does Moses do? Well, Moses does what the crowd in Jerusalem did. Moses went to see what was going on. He went over to look at the bush. He wanted to see the burning bush. Wouldn't that be something you'd want to see? The bush was burning and the bush was not consumed. And what does God do to Moses when he moves towards the phenomenon? God stops him dead in his tracks. God says, don't come any further. In fact, take off your shoes from off your feet. For the ground on which you stand is holy ground. What was God saying to him? You've seen the bush, now get over it. The bush isn't the main act. You're getting ready for the main act. The main act is God. You're going to meet with God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Let me read to you that quotation. It comes from Exodus 3. God says to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look on God. Now that's what we have in this story here. What Moses discovered, you see, is that the God of the Bible, the God of his fathers, the God of Israel, is a God who exists. He's a God who cares. He's a God who speaks. This is what God went on to say to him. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. He's a God who speaks. And he introduces himself to Moses as Peter introduces him here to this crowd in Jerusalem as the God of Abraham. Now, what you need to remember when we read this is, I'm sure Peter's sermons were at least as long as mine, possibly a lot longer than mine. So therefore, all you have here are his notes. I'm filling in because I am known to read sermons. Okay? So I'm filling in the bits that he would no doubt have filled in for you. I'm telling you the rest of the sermon, see. So if, it go, if I go on, blame Peter. I'm just following his outline. So he begins with Abraham. God introduces himself to Moses as the God of Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. God calls him out, you remember, to establish his covenant with Abraham and repeats it to his children and his grandchildren. The promise was basically this, that the seed of Abraham was going to be a blessing to the whole world. That, was the, that is the controlling promise 
the covenant promise that God has given to the world, that, that through the seed of Abraham, who we find out is Jesus, he's going to, God is going to redeem men and women, and he's going to restore this world to its original perfection. We're not going to get that, that far in the text this evening, but that's precisely the theme that he then picks up in the verses that follow the section that we read, the idea of the restoration of all things. So God introduces himself to Moses in those terms and says he's going to set Israel free from slavery because he's faithful to his promises made to Abraham. God's covenant promises guarantee his faithfulness to his people. So what does Peter do? He begins with God and he reminds us of who God is. He is a specific God. He is the God of the Jews He's the God who's worshipped by this audience in Jerusalem. He's the God who speaks. He's the God who cares for his people. And he's the God who, will, who has glorified Jesus. He's the God of their fathers. He's the God who has controlled this event that has taken place and is responsible for what they see and hear. That's who God is. Now, what has God done? How has God fulfilled the promise to Abraham? to bless the nations of the world. Well, he spells it out. God has glorified Jesus. He's identified Jesus in the scriptures through the prophets. And he has justified Jesus. You see how he walks us through this. God has glorified Jesus, he says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. That's a remarkable statement. Because God doesn't share his glory with anybody else. God, God doesn't stay, share his high and his exalted station with anybody else. And who is, who is Peter speaking to these people about? He's speaking to these people about someone they knew. He's already mentioned him. When he was, when he was healing this lame man, he healed the lame man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, despised Nazareth. I mean, you couldn't get any more despised. Oh, I suppose Newark in New Jersey is a place <laughs> like Nazareth. It's not the, not the best place to be, the best place to come from. The roads out of Newark are always the best roads. Well, Nazareth was like that, Jesus of Nazareth. They knew, they knew this Jesus as of someone around whom everybody was divided. Was he a teacher? He was a miracle worker, he was a prophetic figure, extraordinary person, but everybody divided over him. Some were for him, some were against him. And here is Peter, and he calls, he calls Jesus the servant Jesus. And he does that quite deliberately, you see, because in Isaiah chapter 52, these two words that, that, that Peter uses here, this idea of God glorifying his servant, Jesus, are brought together in the text. Peter is doing this quite deliberately. He brings this word servant and the word exalted or, or uh, glorified together here because there in the text, God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now what you need to know is that in Isaiah... That language is only ever used of God. 
In the controlling vision of Isaiah, in chapter 6, where Isaiah, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, he sees the Lord high and lifted up and exalted, glorified in the temple. Throughout Isaiah, it is only ever God who is high and exalted and lifted up. And what he's saying to this to these people, what Peter is saying to these people, by quoting from Isaiah, God has glorified Jesus. He is saying that God has elevated this Jesus of Nazareth over whom they divided and whom they disowned and killed. He has elevated him to a status equal to God himself. He is the one Isaiah spoke about. He has been lifted up. He has been made very high. He has been exalted to the very highest place, the highest place that heaven affords, is his by sovereign right. God has glorified Jesus. And this leads me to say then that what Peter does is show them that God has identified Jesus in the scripture. God has identified him by this title, the servant of the Lord. That's quite, again, crucial. This brings us right into the language of Isaiah and the rest of what Isaiah talks about because this one who is exalted and made high and given the place of glory by God, this one we're then told by Isaiah is despised and rejected by his people. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's cut off from his people. He's disowned by his people. The very people who should welcome him turn away from him. This figure that he identifies, that is identified by God here, is the controlling picture of Jesus that we find in the New Testament and which Luke is very well aware of. As one commentator puts it, Jesus himself saw his suffering as the Son of Man through the lens of the servant image that we have in Isaiah. New Testament writers were well aware that this was the passage that explained what had subsequently happened to Jesus. So when he's introduced the servant image, you see, then he goes on to show how this identification had worked out in practice. What happened? You handed him over to be killed. The you is emphatic. You did. This particular crowd of people living in Jerusalem were responsible for that action, initiated by their leaders, but approved by them. You disowned him. You disowned him, he says. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You see the enormity of their action here. He is the Holy One, the Holy One of God. That language comes from Isaiah too, Isaiah as well. This idea of God being the Holy One, again the controlling vision of Isaiah sees God as blindingly, Holy, he is, he is above us. He is apart from us. He is against us in his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Jesus is the Holy One of God. That's how he was introduced right at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. And he is the righteous one. We know that the righteous one was a, a messianic designation. This is where the Messiah was described within Judaism. But we know also that that comes straight out of Isaiah 52, 53 again. He is God's holy servant. And he is the righteous 
servant, my righteous servant. This one that they have disowned is the very servant God sent. All they've done is they've fulfilled all the word that God had given them. They have taken the place of those who despised and rejected the very righteous one that God has sent. What have they done? They commanded or they demanded the condemnation of the innocent and the acquittal of the guilty. Their corporate action prevented Pilate from releasing Jesus. He wanted to release him. They said, no way, Pilate. We want him killed and we want Barabbas, the murderer, released. In other words, they refused to accept the Savior King provided by God and they preferred a murderer to be released or granted to them in his place. Peter goes on. You killed the author of life. Yarkegox, the author, the prince, the leader, the author of our salvation, the author of our faith. Author is perhaps the best description. It means the first cause, the chief, the ruler, the leader, the originator of something. The word leader is far too weak. Translation. He is the source of life, the author of life. Jesus who says, I am the life. This is the Jesus. The pioneer, the giver, the author of life. They had him killed. You see the contrast, this juxtaposition between what they had done to him. They swapped a murderer for the giver of life. Life in its totality. And the evidence that Jesus is the author of life is standing jumping and leaping and walking in front of their eyes. He is the author of life. These man, this man's limbs were dead. These muscles did not exist. Look at the man. Jesus is the author of life. He gives life to the dead. Now you say, well, I wasn't in the crowd at Jerusalem. But do you see every time you disown Jesus or you reject Jesus or you stand apart from Jesus or you don't even admit that you belong to Jesus, what are you doing? You're taking your stand with those people who act as if he is non-existent or he is irrelevant to them. And you are guilty alongside of humanity, of this reality, that if mankind is given the opportunity... He will murder his maker. You killed the author of life. So, God has glorified this Jesus. God has identified who he is. He's the suffering servant, the righteous one, the holy one, the author of life. But Peter goes on. God has justified Jesus. He has justified him. God has reversed the human decision. He has reversed the ravages of death by raising Jesus to life. And the resurrection of Jesus, you have to understand, is a forensic thing. That is, it is a legal thing. The resurrection of Jesus is put like this in, in Romans chapter 1. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection 
from the dead? Why should the spirit of holiness raise from the dead Jesus if he was a guilty man? The wages of sin is death. If Jesus stayed dead, then he was not righteous, nor holy, nor the author of life. If Jesus stayed dead, then he was right to be put to death. But God raises Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that Jesus is justified, justified in every respect. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. How is he justified in the spirit? By being raised from the dead. In other words, when Jesus is raised, it's not just to tell us he has conquered death. He's done that. But it's also a, a declaration by God that Jesus is justified. He's justified. And because Jesus is justified, he, because the curse that he bore on the cross was a curse that was due to others, not to him, because the punishment he bore on the cross was a punishment I deserved, not him. Because he bore my sin and my sorrow and made them his very own and took the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone for me. Because he did that and, it was, and he was holy and righteous and the innocent servant of God. God acts in the resurrection to justify Jesus before a watching world. He raises him from the dead. Now why does he have to raise Jesus? Because Jesus cannot justify me if he has not first been justified by God. That's why in Isaiah 53, having spoken about this, we, we read these words, out of the anguish of his soul, He shall see and be satisfied, and shall, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous, and shall bear their iniquities. Luke knows that you can read Paul when you read his book. Paul's already in circulation. You can read Romans. It's already on the, on the tour of churches. He knows that you can read other books in the New Testament. He knows you can fill in the blanks of Peter's sermon here. He doesn't need to give you all that stuff because it's to be found elsewhere. He gives you the outline. And what he's saying, that Peter is saying, is this. This man walking, leaping, and praising God is a visual illustration of what God does for guilty sinners who can never go into the temple of God. You see, this man, this crippled man, when we first see him, is like Adam, excluded from Eden, Outside the gate, not able to enter because of sin. You know that the temple in Judaism, much of the decoration within the temple was the decoration of a garden. It was meant to be like a little reflection of Eden. Going into the temple of God, the garden temple of God was to go into the presence of God. And here's this man, he was never able to go into the garden temple of God. Never to, able to go into the presence of God. He was excluded, he was on the outside. Until the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Because Jesus was the justified 
one. Raised up, of which, says Peter, we are witnesses. We were there, we were there, we saw it. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I saw Jesus alive. Peter was a witness of that. He says, because we were there, we saw this. It's our charge to bear witness to you that this resurrected Jesus is the one, the only one, who can make a person who's excluded from the presence of God able to come into the presence of God. So the miracle, you see, is about what? He explicitly tells us later on in the passage we've not come to yet that it's about salvation. That's what the miracle is there to teach us. Well, here's my last question. If in this miracle we see what God's like and we see what God has done, we see thirdly how God works. Do you notice this? It's his name, says Peter, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. And so how do I get this perfect health? How do I get into the presence of God? How, how am I able to overcome my sin and that which keeps me back? I need a resurrection. Interestingly, the language that's used earlier on when Peter stretches out and raises the man from the ground, takes the man by his hand and raises him from the ground, is exactly the same language that's used of, about God raising Jesus. Just as Peter raised this man from the ground who was unable to move, so God raised Jesus from the dead. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, God is able to raise you. In other words, if Jesus is raised in justification, God is able to raise you in justification and make you able to come into the presence of God. Oh, yes, Paul said that, didn't he? Paul said in Romans, Jesus was raised for our justification so that we might come into the presence of God. But how do I get that? What is the instrument, instrument by which this resurrection power is communicated to me? And the answer is here in this text. And by the way, it's a very difficult text to translate but, but it basically has a kind of chiastic pattern to it that goes like this. Faith, name, name, faith. That's the kind of order. So you can see that the main central idea is the name. The main idea is the name. Name, name is right there at the big middle. And then on either side, this idea of faith. So the name is not a magic formula to be superstitiously invoked. It's not a mystical mantra to be mindlessly chanted. It's not an absolute power that operates apart from the person it represents. The name is a dynamic symbol for the continuing presence and power on earth of Jesus. Jesus is not trapped in heaven. He is no absentee landlord. He remains an active friend and savior of his people. And it was the exalted Jesus that healed this man. So this miracle, you see, this healing of this man is pointing to the wider, greater saving ministry 
of Jesus. You know that the word to heal and the word to save are the same words. And how is this man, how are you to be saved? By calling on the name of the Lord. Who is the Lord on whom you are to call? Well, it's the name of Jesus, through faith in Jesus. Jesus who both gives us faith. Jesus who is the one in whom we believe. Faith is the empty hand stretched out to receive the blessings of God. You may hear stories about miracles. I would say, take them with a pinch of salt. The only miracle you, miracles you really need to pay attention to are the ones God's told you about in the Bible. Because they're the ones through which God teaches you about the kingdom of God and about his purposes. And there are, there's more in this miracle than what I've told you tonight. There's justification in this. There's a thing that brings a person who's outside into the inside into God's presence. But there's more. And the more is really exciting. But you're going to have to come back next week to hear that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us great and precious promises in your word. And we pray that tonight you'd write your word on our heart and fill us with that joy that uh, comes to those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. In his name. Amen.